0: Well, welcome to the latest edition of The Dishcast, as we're calling it, rather provisionally, I think, at this point. And this week, I'm thrilled to have one of the more interesting, funny, sharp, and brilliant journalists of her generation, Olivia Nuzzi. That's how you pronounce it, right? Yeah. I've never actually heard anybody pronounce your name. and it always, It's funny in these podcasts when I actually have to pronounce people's last names. I've never, ever actually said them. I just read them. I have <laughs> no idea where I'm going. And Olivia is the Washington correspondent for New York Magazine, my old magazine, and has been writing fantastic things for, for the last several years, actually, um, concentrating on Trump, primarily, because that's where all the news has been. Uh, so Olivia, welcome.
1: Thanks Thank you for, for having me.
0: You're so welcome. Um, I wanted to start with this man that we've been covering. I've been attempting to cover. My view is I try and stay away personally from the politicians that I write about or think about because I I tend because the times when I have really in- interacted with them I've been seduced or in some ways beguiled in ways that I try not to be um but you you know you first of all let me tell how did you first meet trump when do you actually lay eyes on him and have a conversation with him?
1: um the first time that i interviewed him was november of 2014 uh i was covering Repu- i was covering what ultimately became the republican primary field uh for the daily beast at the time um And I was writing a piece about casinos in Atlantic City um, about Chris Christie, who who, uh, was about to run for president himself. And I decided to interview Trump about one of his casinos there closing down. And I remember at the very end of the interview thinking almost out of being, I felt like I needed to be polite and ask him if he was thinking about running for president in 2016 um, but I didn't really give a shit and I didn't think that he really would because he'd been pr- pretending to run for president at that point for, for decades. Um, and he it was like he was waiting for me to ask it. And then he acted totally surprised by the question. He was like, oh, yeah, well, 2016, I'm paraphrasing. He was like, you know, I, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. I'm looking at it. And, you know, he gave this answer that said, basically, if the country is still going to shit in a couple months then maybe I'll do it. And I remember asking my editor at the time, you know, should we even bother to write this up? And she was like, yeah, I guess. And so, you know, we wrote it up in this very, very skeptical way. Like, he's thinking about it again. He always is thinking about it. Um, and then a couple months later, he came down the escalator. <laughs> and I've been, you know, on on that beat uh, ever since. How
0: did you find him in that first interview?
1: He was exactly as i expected um he he just kept repeating i think he repeated it like 10 times in a fairly short interview i made a lot of money in atlantic city and he said "Uh, i want you to say in your article mr trump made a lot of money in atlantic city and then he got out like before it collapsed um but he made a lot of money and so i wrote verbatim mr trump said i want you to say mr trump said and uh i remember getting some feedback that he was a little uh, irritated that I quoted that verbatim. Of course he would be. <laughs> um, um, but That's he, part
0: of your style, though, right? It's, 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 to, yeah. it's, to, it's to lay it all out, <laughs> including the stuff that happens before and after an interview. You you notice people's expressions. Yeah.
1: Um, and he, he was exactly as you would expect, and he, he got kind of wistful, though. He was like oh, if I could have had you there in Atlantic City back when we first opened the Taj Mahal, which is the casino we were talking about, you would have had so much fun. You would have thought it was this and that. He was a little, um, he seemed a little sad. Um, I was surprised by his capacity for introspection, I remember, during that interview, because I figured it was like zero. Um, and so the fact that it was like 0. 0.5, I was surprised by. Well, well how was he um,
0: introspective?
1: He just seemed kind of wistful and... and um there was a there was a audible sadness in his voice, um, and
0: about the good old days.
1: Yeah, about the good old days, and and this casino closing, and um,
0: when he was hanging out with the mafia bosses in the back. Yeah,
1: and, 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 <laughs> and Michael what Jackson, was... and yeah, and
0: breaking the law like yeah. consistently, right? I mean, how many times did they get? They yeah. get sort of
1: and stiffing all sorts of contractors. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, But it was a totally unremarkable exchange with him. Um,
0: And you weren't sort of compelled by this personality or this person?
1: No, I thought it was great. It was exactly what I needed for the piece I was writing. You know, it was like he was the perfect um, transitional villain for this piece that I was writing about this casino. Um, And so I was happy, you know, as a journalist, I remember being very happy about it. But I didn't think well, I'm probably going to spend the next six years of my life contemplating this man. And, of
0: course, that interview was him repeating a lie to you that he got out in time.
1: That he had got out in time Mm -hmm. and that he had made a lot of money there, and it was a great success. So,
0: now, when he's telling you this lie, because this is something Mm -hmm. I've tried to sort of figure out myself, do you think he's he's, I mean, at what level is he consciously aware it's a lie, and to what extent has he just talked himself into believing this? And, 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 because uh, this is what I'm, this is one of the questions about him. Mm-hmm. Is he sitting there thinking, I know this is a lie and I'm going to say it? Or is he, as I suspect, so uh, pathologically narcissistic that what he wants to be true becomes true in his own mind and then it's, then it's just an assertion? Or is it a, is it a method of power? If he can force you to take his lies seriously, he kind of controls you.
1: Yeah, I at that point I, it's interesting. I've spoken to people. I remember talking to Barbara Rez who was a she was an executive at the Trump organization for I think maybe 15 years, something like that in the 80s and 90s. Um and I remember she was one of the first people who told me that there was a certain point in his becoming uber famous, like worldwide famous, when he lost his capacity to be self-deprecating when he really seemed to lose his self-awareness and he was no longer in on the joke um and so i think at some point prior to the art of the deal prior to um the apprentice perhaps or when i've talked to people who knew him then um he was very much conscious of the fact that this is all bullshit and he's just spinning and people will buy anything and he's just a a salesman um but I guess at a certain point if you live that every second of every day and your survival depends on living that uh, maybe it it ceases to matter uh, if you really buy it or not you know yeah no I mean it's hard to tell
0: I'm just trying to figure out in the the assertions that he wanted yeah. a landslide yeah right uh at what level is he saying? Because I then also read that he's asking people, do you think, think they rigged this? Did do, do, the do Dominion really rig this? He's privately sort of testing whether that stuff is completely bonkers. Uh, and obviously with this case, he just can't, it's just his psyche cannot understand how that happened.
1: I, I, you know, I do talk to people who talk to him who say that that's not quite true, that he had already accepted that he was probably going to lose. He started to accept in. I mean, my reporting suggested that by July, after the Tulsa rally, the disastrous Tulsa rally, um, he started to realize that he might lose to Joe Biden. And then by election night, he was resigned to the fact that that was likely going to happen. I talked to one of his uh, one of his senior advisors, who was telling me that at one point he started to really second guess the yes man around him. And he started to say, well, how could all the polls be wrong? And obviously. In the end the polls were quite wrong but just not exactly in in the way that he needed them to be to win right but how could everybody be wrong about what's going to happen he started to sense that it was bullshit, even though when people would try to talk to him about the reality of the situation he might flip out at them he might yell at them um but i i think that he i mean based on the people i talked to his advisors who talked to him He's just trying to keep all options open. That's always his strategy, right? And going into this next era, whatever it is for him, he wants all options available to him. And if one of these crazy, uh, quote unquote, legal efforts, a lot of them are barely that, uh, one of them works, let's say, um, that's great. If they all fail, okay, he'll move on to the next thing, if that's Trump TV or whatever it is. Um, he just wants all options available. and He wants to be able to continue to say that the election was taken from him and be the underdog and rile up his, his base and keep them engaged for four more years if he decides to run again. But it's not really whether or not he believes it is almost besides the point.
0: Does he have any sense of his—and I mean, this is one thing I've kind of struggled with—any sense of— that with the power of the presidency comes a modicum mod a sort of small amount of responsibility for the system as a whole he doesn 't seem to have ever understood himself as an actor within a system mm-hmm. that that dictates a certain kind of response a certain kind of behavior uh but he seems Completely incapable of that kind of behavior.
1: Completely disinterested in that as a concept too, right? He has no interest in learning about democracy, learning about what he's a part of. He learns about history only as it relates to his sense of himself, right? And and making himself feel good or feel important. So his kind but of absurd
0: passion for Jackson yeah, uh, right. is like, obviously just... Yeah,
1: he learned about him like somewhat recently, right? And, and, and he, he referenced... also learned
0: recently that Lincoln was actually a Republican, which is, yeah, yeah. is still kind of staggering him every day with that thought. But I do remember when I first figured out maybe I was in my teens or something, that Lincoln was a Republican. And, yeah.
1: Uh, I mean he doesn't seem to have any interest in anything that is not like immediately useful to him. Um and and so no, I guess to answer your question. And he's not I, a lot of people talk about him like he's very stupid, but I just think that he, is, he has no interest in things that are not directly related to what he wants and what he needs in that moment. And so it's maybe if he were to study something, he would be able to learn about it. And he, He's not stupid. He could absorb it, but he just doesn't want to and doesn't give a shit, and so he's not going to. And so the result is that he comes across as extraordinarily ignorant and, and quite stupid. Um, but he...
0: He's honestly yep. not stupid. He no, has, oh, he's crazy cunning, like fox, yeah. right?
1: Like, um,
0: he's, he's held everyone's attention, even those of us who really did not want to have it held. That's a sort <laughs> of intelligence, you, right? Oh, it's, it's an incredible intelligence. Right, but it's
1: not a traditional uh, type of intelligence. Um, it's certainly not the type of intelligence that most uh, elite journalists tend to respect, right? There's a reason why Pete Buttigieg or uh, Beto O'Rourke appeal to a certain type Of elite journalists because it's like, oh, we've read the same authors and we can both, we can make James Joyce references to each other until, you know, one of us dies. It's like swapping Niebuhr quotes with Obama. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And certainly Trump, you can't do that with Trump, right? But he has a different type of uh, almost animalistic uh, intelligence um, that obviously, was quite effective. He he won the president. You could argue he's one of the most successful Americans to ever live.
0: Yes, you could, and except he's determined <laughs> to blow that out of the water every time. I mean,
1: yeah.
0: he could have launched an administration very different than the one he had. I mean, you, if he were not himself. Right. I so know it's that's,
1: like saying, I right? Know. Like,
0: <laughs> I know.
1: Yeah, sure. Like, he could have done that i guess uh if he were a completely different person uh <laughs> he, he could have been a great humanitarian if he gave a shit about other people like at all, at all. Yeah. does
0: he does he actually care about anyone else is ivanka someone he cares about in any way obviously not I melania mean, you
1: hear anecdotally like i hear from people who have worked with him that oh he is a good person you know if you are directly in front of him and he sees you and talks to you. He does, he has the capacity to seem like he cares or, um, you know, anecdotally when staffers that have left, like I, I profiled um, Hope Hicks for New York Magazine yeah. a couple of years ago. That was a fantastic piece. Thank you. But And I remember when, you know, when she told him she was leaving, one of the things that that he said to her was that you know he, he loved her and that he hoped that she would come back and that he was very uh upset that she was leaving very emotional about it and it it was because he cares about her but it's like how does that does that manifest in like a normal way the way that you know no he's not a normal person do you think he's
0: been in touch with her since in a well, way she's
1: that, back she well came yes back, but yeah. in that
0: period when she was away was they he, were in touch okay. yeah yeah Yeah. What did what did she see in him? Like that's I mean, that's one of the things that sort of I'm I'm compelled by the people who were capable of overlooking so much. And someone like her, she she had so much going for her. Uh, She
1: was easier to understand before she came back because she was one of the people who she worked for the Trump organization. Um, She's a PR person in New York. And then and had the Trump organization account at the PR firm that she was working at. And then um, went inside the Trump organization, got a job there working for Ivanka, working for the kids, became close to Ivanka, became close to Trump through Ivanka. Because if anyone has Ivanka's blessing, they, you know, they're okay in Trump's eyes. Um, And when she agreed to go to Iowa, which was the first step, as it it often is, uh, for Trump to run in 2015 formally, Um, she didn't think, nobody thought, Trump didn't think that it was really going to end up with him getting the Republican nomination, certainly not winning. So I think I wrote at one point that it was almost like agreeing to go study abroad or something. It was like, why the hell not? You know, it's going to be an interesting experience. I've never been to Iowa before. You know, I I think I reported at one point she said something like, what do people wear there? You know, it was just like not a uh, not a serious thing. And and why not? It's going to be fascinating. Um, And as it gets further and further along, I think it's a combination of oh, this continues to be a fascinating experience. And also you get this bunker mentality where you might be able to reasonably convince yourself that so much of the criticism from the outside is bullshit, that uh, there are a lot of things that are, that are unfair that are being said or being reported, or people don't really get him or get what is going on internally. And you're able to kind of become radicalized in a sense. And then when you get the opportunity to serve in a white house and you're I'm trying to think how old she was. And I think she was 28 or 29. It's like another, well, when else am I going to get this experience? Right. It's it's very self-serving and you're not thinking broadly, you know, is this good for the country or, you know, is this good for democracy? It's it's all very self-serving. Um, but you, I can understand how someone makes that calculation. It's more difficult for me to understand how having left and seeing it from the outside or people who did not start out at the beginning there, people who entered in the, middle of the first year, or in the second year, in the third year, or people who joined, you know, somewhat recently, that is totally perplexing to me. Those are, I think, the extraordinarily cynical people who realize never again, probably, will there be an administration where someone with my credentials or my skill level will be able to get the vault this far, Mm. you know, those are the, the real cynics.
0: Like Rick Grinnell or someone.
1: Right, like in one other universe. Right? In what other universe would Rick fucking Grinnell be in any position of power?
0: Well, his own universe, I'm pretty sure. Um, so, what do you? So, so if you were to ask yourself, so why did Hope Hicks come back? What is she? What is she after? I'm just. I'm I mean, trying to understand is me these people.
1: Speculating, right? But, um, um I could understand. I, I wouldn't say that I. I when I say I could understand, I should say for anyone listening who's like, fuck you, normalizing Nazis or whatever. When I say I could understand, what I mean is I I can see how she arrived here with her worldview, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. which is it's the center of the universe. And you leave the center of the universe, the biggest story in the world, uh, the most powerful place in the world. You're at the center of everything to go... Work at fucking Fox right. in l a right uh, around a bunch of people who probably don't like you, don't want you in their Pilates class. I could see <laughs> how it feels um, besides the point and how you might feel like you know I, I think oftentimes people make this argument when i ask you know how how could you how do you live with yourself basically a lot of times the argument is well if i weren't there you know you don't know what could happen if i wasn't there right which is it's impossible to prove something like that what
0: proportion of the people you talk to had that in their heads, or do you think it was entirely bullshit
1: a lot of times when people say i mean a lot of times when people say that they don't phrase it quite so um uh in such an eye roll inducing way right it's more like um i i profiled an anonymous republican yeah. source of mine recently and this person was clear-eyed about the fact that this is a totally self-serving argument and you could just as easily argue the opposite and uh they were not under any illusions about about this argument but basically if you're not there then you're abdicating the field to the crazy people and the the true believers and the people who might really want to fuck something up to get something done that's really destructive. And just by being there, if you are a a member of the quote-unquote establishment, if you are a Rob Porter or a Gary Cohn or a Steve Mnuchin or whoever, um, that you necessarily stand in the way uh, you're just an, you're another roadblock to destructive things happening, and it's impossible to to prove something like that one way or the other, right? Aren't you it's also a roadblock
0: to constructive things happening? I mean, you think you, I think, for example, of immigration as mm-hmm. the, one of the key parts of his initial one of
1: the only things was
0: incredibly <laughs> the
1: only policies,
0: right? <laughs> and yet, you know, and there have been there has been a reduction in people coming over the border in the last four years. Um and he has managed, but only by temporary, short-term, not very effective cruelty or incompetence, not an actual possible legislative deal that mm-hmm. would have, and he could have, he nearly got it, um, that could have gotten funding for the wall in return for dreamers. And you know, there was a bargain to be had until he and Stephen Miller just scotched it. Mm-hmm. Um and then and so, basically, and he's really not done much structurally to alter the immigration situation. No, mm-hmm. um, oh,
1: it's all been it's all been sloganeering. It's been this uh, public relations campaign of cruelty and uh, trolling, and. I think in some ways it's yielded what he wanted in that it it riled up his base. But even I, I started to notice this year when when they restarted the rallies after after Tulsa, it used to be at a Trump rally. If the crowd was like kind of tiring out a little bit or everyone's looking at their phones or talking to each other, Trump. He's a, he's a wonderful showman. He's very good at it. He would sense it, it seemed, and he would just out of nowhere. He could be talking about anything, like anything. And he would just be like, what are we going to do? Build that? And everyone say, wall. <laughs> so he could be talking about taxes. He could be talking about healthcare. He'd be talking about, uh, I don't know, Gary Busey. It wouldn't matter. He just throws build the wall out there and it would re-engage the crowd and i noticed at some of these rallies and they're in airport hangars they're not huge rallies compared to the arena of monster truck rallies but it's a substantial crowd of people who love him they were they would say it back but it was kind of like build the wall like they <laughs> they weren't totally uh amped up and it's kind of like well after five years of hearing that you're going to do something when it hasn't it. transpired right or when they start to realize that there already is a wall in most places where you can build one, um, it didn't really have the same uh, energizing effect. But
0: so there was almost a non-issue in in the twenty twenty campaign.
1: Yeah, he didn't really talk about it too much, and yet, but his his numbers, as far as we can tell, with with the data available right now, improved among Latino voters. Right. Um,
0: well, some Latino voters are very hostile to illegal immigration. Right. It's mean, so a
1: lot more complicated than <clears throat> it is. Than I think uh, you know we we. Gave it credit for a lot of us in the media and a lot of us "quote unquote" experts and data. What gets me data. is though that
0: if he would had a modicum of competence or focus,
1: mm-hmm.
0: he could have he could have built an incredible new legacy. I mean, if you if you start out with massive infrastructure spending, if you if you don't care about the budget at all, if but you, you didn't. which he doesn't obviously, and if you then construct, you could build, you could definitely develop a right populist agenda that could actually do very well. I mean, what I was surprised by in this last election is how well the Republicans did, considering where we yeah. thought they were. The, the country brother like the UK discovered that, in fact, you know, yes, conservatism is alive and kicking in, in lots of places, and mm-hmm. it has successfully co-opted some of these hot-button issues without actually affecting them very much. I mean, if mm-hmm. you if you look at immigration into the UK, it hasn't really changed that much. If you look at uh if you look at the US too, there hasn't been any stru- as I would say, structural reform to prevent illegal immigration. Do you think that for him and I know there's the story that they just gave him this build the wall thing as a as a mnemonic, as a sort of a device to have him remember to talk mm-hmm. about immigration. But it, I have, you know, gone through what he said and believed in the past. And that does seem to be a consistent feeling of his. He doesn't like people coming into his country. He doesn't like the other he's invading.
1: He's totally xenophobic. Um, he learned that word, it seems like, over the last year. And he has. Uh, he seems to be kind of amused by the word. And I, I noticed when he says it, he talks about it within the context of the coronavirus and the uh, criticisms of him and his uh, policy on China from joe biden from nancy pelosi and he says they called me xenophobic and then he'll spend a minute saying xenophobic over and over again <laughs> as if like he just learned this kooky term and he's probably um, really thrilled about it, that it
0: begins <laughs> with an x and not a z yeah
1: um i who knows if he knows that right but um he yeah he has i i think one of his most reliable he doesn't have a lot of um consistent beliefs. Uh, a lot of what he believes is quite flexible. But one of the things that he does consistently believe is is in a rather isolationist worldview. I don't think that he would use such terminology. But there, you know, there's a lot of overlap with him and like Ron Paul on foreign policy, right? But then at the same time he'll contradict himself and he'll say, we gotta bomb the shit out of them, or, you know, maybe, oh, maybe we'll put boots on the ground. But then he'll talk about being against the Iraq war from the beginning, which is not true. He was initially for it. And so it's like anything else with him. He contradicts himself so often that even if at the end of the day he's basically held a belief for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, he's probably also on record undermining that belief. Um, and so it's a bit difficult to talk about, you know, what he believes, the Trump doctrine.
0: The the other paradox that I, the other Theme that one could tell in him personally was germophobia too. This, this, or is that is that a myth?
1: I'm skeptical. Who, okay, who has sex with a an adult film actress and director? She's very smart. I don't. You know, I'm not going to. I don't want to call her a porn star. But who would have unprotected sex with uh, an adult film actress if they were a germaphobe?
0: Who we, are we talking about? Someone in particular, <laughs> the fact
1: that you don't even know who I'm talking, this, about. This I'm Stormy talking about. Stormy Daniels? Daniels, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I yeah, like yeah. Stormy so, Daniels. I, so, I mean, that's that's odd behavior for a germaphobe to me. I think it's that he just like doesn't like the unwashed hordes of people, he doesn't want to do backslapping and baby kissing. And I think that he's grossed out by poverty, by people who are not. Um, part of the same class that he views himself as being a part of i don't think it's genuine germophobia i I think that he is just um
0: a form of snobbery yeah i
1: think it's a form of snobbery and and um a bit yeah i think mostly that i think if you are like a hot woman he's not going to be like grossed out and not want to touch you (laughs) you know and so then can you really call that germophobia i don't think so
0: you're right that's interesting um, and again, you know, you think of populists as these men of the people. They're out there. They're talking to, you know, yeah, they're yeah. he I've never seen him do retail
1: politics he, at all. Initially, you know, when he started out in, in 2015, before he had Secret Service protection, uh, when he was just kind of had, you know, a handful of staffers around him. It was like Hope Picks, Dan Scavino, maybe Corey Lewandowski, um, maybe Sam Nunberg. Um, this initial group that fell apart pretty quickly um, when he first announced for the Republican nomination. They would get on a plane together. They'd go to New Hampshire. They'd go to Iowa or wherever. Um, And he, I remember talking to someone who told me like his favorite thing to do would be to be in this like little motorcade, stop at a red light, roll the red light down and like Talk to whoever was next to them on the street at the red light or um go give dollar bills to people assembled at a at a at a fence waiting for him or something at an airport or uh, go to the McDonald's drive- through and like you know talk to people there and that when he got secret service protection when everything became more it became more cumbersome I guess to to travel around and to be Donald Trump that that he was sort of it was like he'd had his wings clipped a bit and that he was very wistful for that time
0: like his little uh, drive by the protesters in yeah, the white house he loved
1: Just... that shit he really did but he never did even even if even when he when you'd see him in Iowa or whatever early on or in uh, New Hampshire very rarely did you're not going to see him in like a diner shaking every hand, talking to every voter, listening to what people have to say about their health care and then their concerns for their family. Like, he just is not, he's never been that type of politician. And it's reflected in his, you know, lack of giving a shit on a national scale.
0: Yeah. Do you think he seriously wanted to govern the country for another four years? No. Or did he just, couldn't tolerate the psychic blow of losing?
1: I, I mean, everyone that I talk to, and a grain of salt, half the people I talk to are like famous liars, right? So right, it's like right, right. everyone I talk to, some of them I, I believe, some of them I don't believe. But overall, they all basically say that he is, you know, that he didn't enjoy being president. He didn't enjoy the when, the moments when he would become aware of this awesome responsibility freaked him out. Yeah,
0: he, um, he 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 hated it. I he mean, didn't
1: like it, but he did enjoy. He does enjoy the status, right? He and he, that there's a scene in um Madeline Westerhout. He, she was his secretary for for quite a while. Um, there's a scene in her book, which is awful. Her book in general, awful book. But she's got the scene where um, she talks about how if they were having a particularly bruising news cycle or morale was just really low for some reason, that the president would. Say we kind of corral everybody and bring them into the Oval and say like, look at this, look at where we are, isn't this amazing? And I've heard things like that over the years where he, and I think it explains lately he's been staying in the Oval later than he normally would. Normally he'll he'll leave at like six thirty or so to go have dinner in the residence, and I think it was last week or the week before um he was staying till like eight nine o'clock, and I was thinking, oh maybe it's him kind of soaking up the the final days of. Being in this place that, against all odds, he he found found himself in. Mm. So I, I think he disliked and never understood how to be president. Right? He didn't like any of the the formal shit. The you know, but he
0: but he would also say things out loud that presidents just never would in the past. I mean, he seemed to have a sense that his words were no more had no more authority. Mm-hmm. Than they did before. I mean, a, a friend of mine once described uh, the the way to understand Trump is to begin every to preface everything he says with, "And now, Donnie from Queens, you're on the air." That <laughs> uh, that that though he never seemed to understand that his words had consequences right. or weight, even though he deployed them constantly to manipulate or to guide public opinion. It's a strange. Yeah. He almost. Didn't become president in any meaningful way. There was no sense at which one gets the sense that he had any awe.
1: I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of an example when his words were enough. I mean, he had he has killed negotiations or or you know derailed otherwise uh, promising news cycles for himself with the power of the tweet, right? Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Do you think he could have emerged without Twitter?
1: I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, you know all, all those it does seem to be, like suit that, him. It does. perfectly, though. It does suit him perfectly. It's, you can't um, imagine
0: Obama using Twitter in that way.
1: No, of course not. Right? right. I mean, what, what would that even look like? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> no. Um, I I don't know. It, it's interesting. Um, I don't know. All those hypotheticals, though. I I have a hard time. When he he met
0: his idols, like Putin or Xi, well, (laughs) they are, right?
1: I don't think he he has any idols.
0: Really? You think it's all about him?
1: Yeah.
0: I always thought his his liking of Putin comes from this sort of end of dictatorship. There's not so much as he's a philosophical authoritarian. He just thinks that the coolest guys are the guys who connect to the mafia in the back of the room, who get things done. I think there's probably
1: some of that. I think it's also like, oh, I'm not supposed to like this guy. Fuck you. I like him.
0: Do you think you know, the Democrats completely fucked up on the Russia front? Do you think that was a massive diversion, distraction, or was, no, it, I mean, was I, it unfair?
1: I think that the there was a lot of fucking up on the punditry,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: right? There was a lot that pundits on the left got away with that were reversed. I mean, we see it reversed all the time on the right. Uh it is not tolerated and and is not treated seriously, um, but I don't think it was a mistake to investigate it.
0: No, uh, I don't you know. Either. I think
1: there there was plenty of credible evidence to suggest that it it certainly need to be investigated. And I think there was some incredible journalism, and unfortunately that gets conflated with the commentary
0: with Rachel Maddow every night. Right, where you've got more elaborate conspiracies. Right, you've got
1: Maddow and and people like her and people that she welcomed on her air. Um, undermining the reporting of the New York Times or, or The Washington Post and I think that's a tragedy and and it's difficult to talk about um, when you know when we talk about mistakes that were made with the media um, but I, but no I don't think in general it was a mistake for for people to investigate it but I no. do think that the the pundits did not help anybody. And when do they really, right? And but this they really was didn't.
0: a fixation of him, the thought that they were trying to delegitimize his presidency.
1: Yeah, uh, but or he, do you think that
0: was he, just a rhetorical excess on
1: his part? I I think that he needs to have an enemy, right? right? And when it wasn't Hillary Clinton, it was the press or it was a combination of the press and Hillary Clinton. And they're, work, they're all t- working together with the deep state. He is a showman and he is... He thinks of this like WrestleMania, and he's not wrong. That's how it works.
0: And like WrestleMania, I mean, one thing that I've always sort of been fascinated by him is this this ridiculous outfit and and look he has. I mean, this, I mean, literally this weird orange face, this hair that really defies. He
1: wouldn't work without it. He's like Fran Leibovitz. Like, not that Fran looks ridiculous or anything, but like she's got her iconic uniform. And that is part of why she is iconic right? right and he understands that he knows that if it weren't for i think he has probably been quoted saying something to this effect um
0: how long did it how long was it take take him in the morning to get that fixed
1: one of, i mean one of my dream stories
0: which we never got to, just, which
1: i never got and i i still would love to get it's just like how he spends like a tick tock of his mornings right because he wakes up fairly early I mean, you know, I have two dream stories and they're related. One is, you know, when he started having trouble sleeping. You know, what point in his life was that? And uh, if he always had trouble sleeping, or how he finds does he fall asleep with the television on? Like these are some questions I have. And then how he spends his morning because he wakes up fairly early, and his intelligence briefing often is not until like eleven thirty. You know he starts his day like when I do, <laughs> right <laughs> which is not good <laughs> like me, yes. yeah, right. Um he's like a fucking writer how he starts <laughs> his day. um And, yeah, you know, what does he? and we know he he spends his time on the phone. We know he spends his time watching cable, but like, where geographically, where is he? what is he is he dressed? Like, how long does that take? How long does it take to get his hair styled just so?
0: Does he have one person who does the hair all the
1: time? he does as far you
0: would think he does it himself i
1: know that he does his own makeup he's wow. very very particular about doing his own makeup and that started to become I, mean, I started to hear about that in the republican primary in 2016 when you know you'd be in iowa or new hampshire or wherever for a debate or something and the freelance makeup artist would say like oh god you wouldn't let us touch him or you know he just took powder and did it himself um he's very particular he does it himself um and the hair, I, I wouldn't be surprised if if he did the hair himself, too. But he obviously also colors it. And I, I have reason to believe, but I don't know for sure, that Melania colors it for him, or at least recently that's been the case.
0: Why? Because, because obviously other people aren't getting too close to him because of the yeah. COVID situation? Yeah. That's how weird this man is. Was there anything you think um, in his term of office that really shook him, that really shook rattled him? him in a way that... In any way rattled his self confidence, because he must have been massive. I mean, inside surely, massive insecurities about his ability to do this job, which he kind of didn't really do in the end. What we consider to be the work of a president, really the administrative part of it, right. I don't get the impression he he did absolutely minimal amount of that. When I,
1: mean, I remember, you know,
0: Obama staying up all night eating one almond at a almonds. time,
1: <laughs> six almonds. I think it was six or seven. It was some like. Really hilarious number. I know it was under eight. Was it <laughs> yes, six or seven? It was.
0: It was just insane. I'm just like, I think
1: it was six almonds.
0: Do you think we kind of needed Trump after Obama? I mean, psychologically, no. America. No. Okay. I mean,
1: I'm just. I'm just me can- tell You me to get the to get two- me canceled again. Um, no. <laughs> no. I mean,
0: I just. I'm just talking about the personality change more than anything.
1: No. No. But I think. I mean, look. I'm not. It's not. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that. This was obviously a backlash to the election of the first black president. I mean, obviously, it starts you know you see it take shape while Obama's still running. You see it taking further shape with the Tea Party and just the trends of negative partisanship and and radicalization on the right. I think that we hadn't seen since the Gingrich revolution um and it seems as though this is kind of how America works goes in cycles like this.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, I'm just thinking that just temperamentally that, that, that Obama he's his extraordinary poise and you know, almost calm demeanor and he's knowing everything and all that stuff. But it, 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 it was uh, you know, it, it, it did create a mood for some—I for, mean, often the mood of a, the successive president is very different than the one before him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, and to some extent, what Trump represents is part of America. The sure. salesman, the bullshit artist, the fraud, the, fraud, the con man.
1: Sure, he's these... a reflection. Yeah, I think any president is a reflection of a, at least a faction of yeah. the country. But somehow
0: we avoided having this particular kind of person representing the United States almost throughout our history,
1: yeah, I mean what was that um Mencken quote about the the about Harding It's like one day the people of the land will reach their heart's desire, and an absolute moron will get elected president or something like <laughs> yes. that. I'm paraphrasing, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know what Trump would have sounded like or looked like in the as an american in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s but i uh, some of it might just have to do with how visible he is and and how much how much access we have to his psyche on a 24 seven basis right? right like we've had we've had philandering drug addicted asshole dumbass presidents before right we just you're talking
0: about john f kennedy I'm <laughs> talking
1: about a, nixon kennedy you know like
0: they seem um, they seem less unstable and oh i'm not, I'm not saying that trump this is, is
1: not a, a tremendous departure and, and uniquely insane and uniquely uh a jerk he is um but it's hard to compare him um in terms of you know we we have access to kind of a constant stream of consciousness
0: Yes. From him,
1: um, and we have access to information about his personal life, his sex life, uh, all sorts of things that that the American. What do you people think that were... tells
0: you about him? The way he's treated women his whole life.
1: No. Um, is it simply not... that
0: he's an abuser, or is it slightly more complicated than? That?
1: Well. I don't know. What, what, I mean...
0: He clearly has had successful relationships with women, with women who have, I mean, within the Trump organization. Um, right. He, but that
1: doesn't mean that it can't be true that he has raped a woman, as, as is alleged, or that he has sexually assaulted women, as has been alleged, or mm-hmm. that he sexually harassed women, as has been alleged, or um, as, all of as that He has true. As he has boasted. Right. I, I mean, mean, all of alleged. that can be true, yeah. right? And I, I think... Um, I guess I don't I don't find it a compelling argument against the allegations that he has successful relationships with his daughter no. or, or, or at least one of his daughters or with women who worked in the Trump organization or that he has uh, empowered women, which is something that women who support him like to say, you know, that he's put women in positions of power at the Trump organization or at the White House. Um, that doesn't mean shit, you know, that that doesn't disprove anything. Right. Um, all of those things can be true at once. Yes. Um, and yeah, so I don't know what, what it tells us about him, except that he is kind of exactly as he, as he appears.
0: Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, always, do you think there's a moment in his life when he ever asks himself, "Am I right about this?" Do you think there are moments, or is this when he's on the phone with his friends and he, he kind of says, "So tell me, you know, am I getting really crazy about you?" He just or like when he started to say, are "You are all the polls wrong," mm-hmm. um, or uh, when he apparently, you know, telephone call says, "You know, so, so do you really think it's, could it could be entirely rigged?" Right. Uh, I mean, I from the outside, you get a sense of complete lunatic, someone who's 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 charting uh, theories and ideas that seem to have almost no basis in reality. But there's something slightly more human about him behind the scenes. Is that? Is that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, he. Does... How did he react
0: to you personally in that when you? When you...
1: Which time? The...
0: Well, anytime. I mean, how does he, because he clearly, I mean, he brought you in for a one on one interview around Kelly, right? Um, Mm. And he seemed in the piece I read, you know, to be pretty interested in what you were about to say and do, took you seriously, was concerned to persuade you.
1: I wouldn't say that he took me seriously. He was trying very hard to make me think that they were all taking me very seriously and, and you know, to flatter me in that way. Cause I, um, but the fact to me, what was so interesting is that they were taking all of this, for your listeners who aren't familiar, I was reporting... Frankly, a very silly story about why the president had not fired his chief of staff yet at the time, despite all of these rumors that that the chief of staff is going to be fired. Um, and instead of just letting that play out, um, ultimately, obviously, he was fired, like they all are. Um, the the president and uh, various members of the cabinet took significant time out of out of their day to sit down with me in the oval and try and convince me that everything was going great and that it was a a finely functioning workplace a
0: well-oiled yeah
1: um and so that was you know deeply amusing to me uh and proof of, of the point that i was reporting on that it was a disaster internally um but um no, I, di- I didn't think that he took me seriously. I thought that he was trying, and in some ways he succeeded in getting me to not report what I was going to report. I still reported it, but the context became, you know, this, this silly event that I, that I displayed, for one, that I observed, um, rather than simply the context of that palace intrigue. And,
0: and this is sort of what you've made, you know, reputation for. You sort of deconstruct and unpack Mm-hmm. these otherwise formulaic journalistic events just sort of look mm-hmm. slightly behind the scenes. I mean, you started out, you made your name covering Anthony Weiner,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you could put it that way. Well, I, okay. I, I'm, well, I, so you put it your way. I was, um, well, it would be overly generous to say I was covering him. I was his intern right. um, for very briefly for like a month um, when he ran for mayor of New York. And I was uh, freelancing. I was a student at, at the time, and I was freelancing for a magazine called uh, NSFW Corp. Right. Um, and I wrote, I think, two pieces for Not safer for Work Corp about my time interning there. Right when I had left, um, he, he had another sex scandal. And I remember my editor, Paul Carr, called me and said, if you don't write about this uh, you're a terrible journalist and I'm a worst editor worst editor. Um, so I said okay I'll write about it and I wrote two short pieces about it and then the New York Daily News uh, came calling and asked me to write about my experience. And I, I thought I was, I, I'd grown up reading, my dad would bring home the New York Post and the Daily News every day. And compared to the New York Post, the Daily News seems like a very respectable, calm paper. And so I didn't think about it as like a tabloid. I thought it was just like the serious paper in the two papers that he would bring home. Um, and so I said, okay, I'll, I'll write about it, but you can't use my photo and I have to write my own story. You know, you're not writing about it. And they said, okay. And then um, I woke up and my face was on the cover of the New York Daily News uh, Photoshop next to Anthony Weiner. And we were like, I think we were above, we were, at the, we were on the top half of the page and the bottom half of the page was like a real housewife who, whose husband was going to jail or something like that. Um, and it said, confessions of a wean turn. And my father... Not that good. Not great. <laughs> they could have done a better job. If it was supposed the post, they would have had yeah, a job. Yeah, they would have head. had a better yeah. job, yeah. Um, and my father, I remember him calling me and just saying, like, why are you on the cover of the Daily News? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I... It, it, what ensued was, like, it, it was... I thought quite a serious piece about how everyone who worked for Anthony Weiner's mayoral campaign was actually just there to get to Huma his wife so that they could eventually get jobs working for Hillary Clinton's oh, 2016 campaign. I thought it was quite quite a good piece and quite the scoop even though it was written in in a kind of diary diary style that was silly. Um and what ensued was like 72 hours of just mayhem in terms of the media coverage, like every show in the world, asked me to come on. Media requests nonstop. There was like news fans outside of my parents' house in New Jersey. I was hiding in my dorm room in in New York. Like,
0: so you uh, very early on as a journalist, you got an experience of what it's like. Yeah, to be turned into totally. journalistic copy.
1: And so later that the day that it came out, later the day that it came out, the um, spokeswoman for the Weiner campaign, a woman named Barbara Morgan. Um, which report there was a piece by Hunter Walker in Talking Points Memo. Uh, I remember Hunter Walker called me, and I was like, oh, God, what is this going to be about? I was so nervous to talk to him, and he said, uh, I spoke to Anthony Weiner's spokeswoman, and she called you a— can I curse on this? Yes, you I can. I, I said, I'm just asking now, an hour in. She called you a, a cunt, a fucking fucking twat and a slut bag and he was (laughs) like do you have any response and i just like (laughs) dying laughing and i was so i I didn't tell him this but i was so relieved because it had looked like you know they put this photo of me on the cover it looked like i had sold my story and that i had like told all and that they had photographed me It, it looked like a typical tabloid tell all and i thought i looked awful i was absolutely devastated all day. And then when that happened, I was like, well, I look like an angel now. Like, this is great. Um and it just it was very strange though. It was like it was very strange to have the experience of of watching or reading think pieces about me. Like Frank Bruni wrote a column. Like it just um it was it had so little to do with me, the content that was produced about what had happened. And it also was so interesting to see how falsehoods accumulate in a viral story like that where people journalists through no malice um take these little logical leaps and the result is that something is completely wrong by the end of the piece right it's completely skewed um but it's kind of it's skewed based on a million little falsehoods and and it was really um I was very, glad. I was almost immediately grateful that I went through it because even though for a couple of years after the fact, this happened in 2013, um, you know, I'd call an office to set up an interview or, you know, I'd write a piece and the first wave of criticism would just be like, oh, who cares? You intern for Anthony Weiner. Um, but I was still grateful that it happened because I felt like I understood In a way that you just can't unless it has happened, unless you've been the subject, what it's like to have something false be written about you, even if it's small, or, um, you know, what it's like to have people uh, project onto you or to guess what your intentions, your motivations might be. Um, I understood all of that. and, um, And I'm still very grateful that it happened. And cynically, it was also... And continues to be useful when i'm talking to people about profiling them i can i can say honestly you know that i i've been through something similar something similar i've been through a scandal even though now it looks so small uh in retrospect um i have found that people um sometimes people are just happy to have someone to talk to who's been through something like that um and that, that has been. Um, useful. You
0: you have a talent for getting people to say things they you really shouldn't say. <laughs>
1: what do
0: you mean? But the the <laughs> quotes I read in your pieces, I'm like, how did you get that person to cough that one up? Um, that's mm-hmm. a lot of what I find in your piece. So there's some there's some guile in there. There's some, I mean, it's, it maybe it's because you are, I'm just throwing out theories, that because you are you know, you, you you, you don't present a very aggressive person when you see you. You're quite retiring. You're soft-spoken. Maybe they just like you and start confessing to you. Uh, or is it just a question of not, of asking a question and having the strength not to interrupt the silence that comes and waiting for them to cough up the truth or something like the truth? Um,
1: I don't have a very aggressive interview style but i i also um and i am comfortable with that type of um psychoanalyst silence you know that could be very useful to to wait until the subject fills in the gap because no one is comfortable with a gap right? right um but i go into most conversations very open about how i feel about the subject and I, I don't, um, as a practice, and I don't know that this is the right way to do it. I'm, other people have different ways to do it. I'm sure that that's fine too. But I can't, I can't, if I hate somebody or I think someone's an idiot or I think someone has terrible ideas or destructive views or whatever, um, I have to let that be known in the interview. Maybe not like the beginning of the first interview, but I can't, I would I wouldn't be able to sit through an interview and have like, go through a checklist of questions. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to argue. I'm Mm -hmm. Italian from New Jersey, you know, like I like to fight and I like to have it out and I like to challenge people. And I like to do that in my interviews. And I don't want, um, I never want anyone to be surprised um, about what I write about them. And, and by that, I don't just mean that like, You know, I don't mean like I'm not going to withhold what, you know, what my real angle is. The the truth is, and people always hate this when you're pitching them, but I never really have an angle um, because I won't know until I've talked to the person how I feel about them or what I think about them. But I try to kind of honestly have conversations rather than have um, interviews that are designed to... To yield uh how
0: did your upbringing do you think uh evoke that in you i mean because uh you you seem you know you are how you're 27 mm-hmm.
1: uh
0: so you're in, forgive me but you are incredibly young oh stop <laughs> you want to be doing all this stuff the way you're doing it it takes a certain amount of first of all passion that you really want to do this stuff so, where did where did that come from? This desire. to you, you you dropped out of college, right? To mm-hmm. to continue doing your work. So this is a a vocation for you, right? So where does that come from? Why do you why? Um,
1: I'm trying to think. I mean i I did not. There are no journalists in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, there no. I mean, I didn't know that was like an option. You know, I grew up with everyone in my family is like. My father worked for the New York City sanitation department and then retired and had a painting business with his brother. Um, My mother mostly stayed at home. Um, Half the people in my family are everyone is working class. But I think my brother was the first person to graduate from college. Um, You know, if you're not like a hairdresser or a truck driver or you know, they're they're not. This is not a family of like lawyers and doctors. (laughs) Um, And that
0: must keep you. I mean that must because one of the problems we have with journalism right mm-hmm. now is that the elite bubble has yeah. sort of severed people uh, from let's let's say Maureen Dowd and her brother, um, mm-hmm. but Maureen, uh, God bless her, and you know some I mean if I mean I came from a background where I was the first one to go to college too, uh, uh, that in some ways I mean I, I speak just a little bit of myself I, I I do think that my being marinated in that non-college, you know, white, middle-class mm. uh, world helped me see, pick up stuff that my peer, some of my peers just, were, just couldn't see. Yeah. The appeal of Trump, for example, which struck me almost instantly as incredibly powerful. Right. Well, because, I grew up
1: with Trump, though. You have to remember, I grew right, up with him. From New Jersey. I, I, I don't think that there has ever been a time that I can recall that I was not aware of Donald Trump. You know, he was the great tabloid villain of my childhood and and of my adolescence and of my adulthood. Right? He he's always been a presence. Um, I watched. I grew up watching The Apprentice. I watched it in elementary school. Really? I, I remember kids saying, "You know, you're fired" to each other on the playground. Um, and how many so White
0: House he, reporters? Watch The Apprentice when it aired. That's I'm, I'm sure I am don't know.
1: It doesn't come up that often. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of young White House reporters. I think um, I'm, I'm not the youngest right now. I think when I started, I was when, when the administration first started for like five minutes. I think I was the youngest. And then like someone else came in who was the youngest. Um,
0: but journalism but, is kind of a young person's game in many ways because it, it requires, first of all, there's the democracy of the copy. It's, it gets in right. there, or it doesn't, no one cares. Right, right. And it gets there, and in your first day, your column has the same inches as someone who's working there for 40, 40 years right. or so on. Um, and it also requires a, a constant energy and curiosity that is beyond most people. I mean, I mean like, I think of Maggie Haberman. I think, I, I, I just don't know uh, many people that have that kind of uh, pathological
1: passion. But she's the fucking best there is, right? And there's nobody... What uh, makes
0: you a really good... Is it just constant talking completely to people? We different types of reporters, mm-hmm. right? We
1: could not be... Maggie and I could not be more different, but tell, I'm in awe of her. Right. I, I, um, I think Maggie is a great writer, so I don't say this to uh, in any way criticize her at all, but I think that there are... She's talked about how important it is for her to be first and how important it is uh, for her to constantly be breaking news. I yeah, you know, I report to write. I am the type of reporter who I often don't even realize that I have accumulated news until like sometimes I'll like know something and I'll think like, Oh, that's interesting. I'll like file it away, I'm working on a big big long piece about something, and then I'll see it like as breaking news at <laughs> at the Washington Post or on CNN or something. I'm like, Oh, right. Yeah, that you know, that was well, news. But that's just that... not the way my brain works. And that's why I you know, I, I, I like to write longer, more nuanced. And, and that's not to say that that's not a more noble or better way to no, it's different. It's, it's the difference different. between a
0: newspaper and a magazine. It's just
1: different. And then, you know, the, and you know, I'm always getting attacked for uh, quote-unquote access journalism. But the fact that I perform that type of journalism in no way means that I don't think that investigative journalism is more valuable and, and yeah. you know, a Great, noble way to go about this. Um, but you know, Maggie is a machine. Uh, I am not <laughs> That's basically what I meant. but but you know, you're also a magazine about, writer.
0: You write yeah. essays. you you or you write scenes. you
1: I write scenes. i I don't think um
0: could you would you think of writing fiction at some point, or is that is it is is the real world actually uh, more I mean, compelling I've never,
1: there has been as a reader, I have a hard time with fiction. Um, I have a hard time engaging with fiction, which I'm sure is a personality flaw. Um, I do too. I I do too. But I always think, oh, it could be, not that I'm sure there are many things, great many things to be learned from fiction. And this is fully a personality flaw. I understand it. But like, I just always think, oh, I could be absorbing or learning information about something that has actually happened that I don't know about. right? I could be learning about a war or learning about you know, something that I don't know about. There are great gaps in my knowledge. I didn't really do school in like a normal way. And so, um, I always kind of I get very antsy if I'm not um, absorbing information
0: when uh, you're doing a story, what does your day look like? are you are you on the phone? or are you setting up an interview somewhere? Um, or are you are you scouring? the web you uh, it depends right i often
1: i often don't open my computer between writing once i've finished a feature and i close my computer i often don't open it again until i'm setting out to write the next piece like actually start typing it um
0: why? Why but do you run away?
1: I don't run away. I just I do a lot of reporting on the phone. Oh, I see. <laughs> or, oh, I see. Yeah, I see. and I also okay. write a lot on my phone. I've, I write right. entire pieces often just on my phone in the in the Notes app. Um, and I, um, so I don't, I'm not like at a desk. Um, right. And I, I like to be uh, on the road. I, I put that in scare quotes. No one can see me except for you, but uh, on the road. Um, but, you know, I, I was thinking about your question about what about my childhood um, and when I think about it you know I was always for as long as I can remember I was always having people confess things to me adults even at like eight years old I remember having aunts or uncles or parents or babysitters or teachers, or whoever, uh, confess things to me, which is very strange when you think about it. Um, and I don't know why that is. I don't know what quality, um, I feel I like possess. I want to tell you things about myself
0: too. <laughs> I, I, <there's laughs>
1: I don't know why. I really don't know why. Um, but I always, always found myself the recipient of, of information, um, and secrets. And, and I don't, I really don't know why. Um, and, but I, and I also grew up with, uh, you know, raised by fallen Catholics, but the people who my parents seem to respect and not in a conscious way. It's not something that we ever talked about, but like my mother, the most important person in my house growing up was Oprah, like watched Oprah every day. The most important, she was more important than any president, like Well, this is is true. (laughs) I was the most important person in my house. I watched her every single day. Um, And actually became interested in politics because a news alert on Eyewitness News broke in and interrupted Oprah one day. And it was James McGreevy, the governor, resigning.
0: (laughs) Because of his love affair with the Israeli. Right.
1: Um, So... And my parents really respected news people, like they really respected uh, Brian Williams and they really respected um, Tim Russert. And so maybe I absorbed some of that, but it was never something that was consciously discussed. And it didn't even occur to me, uh, you know, I thought maybe I wanted to be a writer. I always like to write, uh, but it didn't occur to me to that you could be a reporter until I was like actually doing it, honestly.
0: And it's it's a natural ability, isn't it? It's, I mean, you you get better the more you do it like you do with anything. but i I, I, I always I found so. I, I always found reporting really hard because I just thought it was rude. It was unspeakably rude. It you would rude, call yeah. people up who didn't necessarily want to talk to you. They were having a perfectly nice day, and, and I'm of I of the
1: generation where people don't, <clears throat> don't don't call each other, right right? Like I had to learn how to really right. call people because it's it was not natural
0: no i and my view was i i I just felt awful Uh, (laughs) especially when part of my job you know as janet malcolm once explained was trying to get them to do things that were not in their interest and and actually disturbing someone's day to get them to be complicit in (laughs) their own sadness struck me as just sort of not something i felt comfortable doing i'd much rather just at a distance read everything watch people closely but Uh but but then think about it and write about it um which i know is you know it's it's uh it's parasitic on people like you uh on people giving me the actual data and analysis Mm. and stories but it saves me from being impolite i mean i'm not i'm sorry I'm, i'm probably not i'm not i'm impolite from a distance <laughs> i'm sure i'd upset
1: huge numbers
0: is. of people but
1: uh yeah i mean at myself at my most self-loathing i i relate to you know that that now totally worn janet malcolm uh essay about how inherently
0: deceptive uh, deceptive all this, stuff all
1: this is. is i think that only really speaks about access journalism though right it's it's but a very to the extent that it's true it's true but a very very narrow type of journalism um and it's not true of all journalists to perform that that type of journalism but there have certainly been been moments at at my most self-loathing where i've related to that um but it's all transactional, right? At that level of, for talking about access journalism, right? The people granting access want something from you. You want information from them. Like it's, it's all gross mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do question the integrity of the whole enterprise.
0: Um, you are pretty much, a, you know, in, in the real thick of things. You're Washington yeah, correspondent for a national magazine, which is, Extremely uh, well edited and a lot of people read it. And you're 27. Like, wh- where do you go from here? What do you, what do you, do you have any ambitions greater than what you are currently doing, but doing it better?
1: Well, I hear that print is thriving and it's a great time to, no, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I, um, I mean,
0: are you confident about survival of online print? media? No, online media, uh, really. Um, because you're not just print, I mean, but some of those big pieces you do are really print um, print, print oriented
1: about it I try not to think about it. I think if I were to think about it too much, I'd probably quit you know, you know I'd probably <laughs> just constantly be in a state of panic. Um, you know, I, I'm very but I am very heartened by the success of like true crime podcasts and true crime documentaries and uh, documentaries in general, and uh, audio, and all the all this long form storytelling mm-hmm. that um that has seemed to have such a that there's been such an explosion of um in the last few years. I think that's great. That's a great sign. Um, and I kind of think. I mean, everyone always likes to talk about the invention of the printing press when we talk about misinformation and the democratization of of news media um but i kind of think we're in like the beginning even if it doesn't feel like that we're still in the beginning stages of of working out the kinks here and i'm not really people will always need to hear about the news and learn about the world around them and i'm not i'm not terribly worried about um finding a way to be a part of that going forward. Maybe that's stupid. Maybe I won't have no, a job. Maybe no. I won't have a job in like a month. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not terribly worried about it.
0: No, people always want to understand the world they're in. Yeah. And people who tell compelling stories about that, as long as they're not fictional, Yeah. people attach themselves to you. Yeah. They follow you. They, they're I do interesting. worry. I
1: worry very much about um, how how people feel about the media um, and, and distrust in institutions generally. Um, and you know, I worry about what we're going to do to to address that. Um, but you know i'm I'm not worried about like waking up and you know only having twitter and and 4chan to to get news from. I don't know.:
0: Well, on that note of optimism <laughs> however however qualified um i'd I'd like to thank you. Olivia, for coming and talking with thank me you. um i'm a big fan and
1: um, i'm a big fan
0: well <laughs> so uh thank you i'm really really fascinated with your insights especially about this crazy four years and this strange person who's been dominating our lives um,
1: thank you
0: it'll be good though to have him at least somewhat in the back
1: i feel like i don't have to go to therapy this week now
0: <laughs> um Thank you so much. No
1: kidding. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having Bye. me.